I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Morgan Runis. And we love to watch. We love to watch Santa being tortured and punished. You know, for kids. Hey Pete, hey Morgan. Hey. Are you going to do a different voice every sentence? Is that your new is that your new character? Yes. <laughs> no. My, my, yes. No, my my new character is uh Mark Hamill with a serious concussion just going through all his like 500 different voices. He's <laughs> like Ugh. Joker. Oh sh- oh shit, it's Disney. Fuck. <laughs> uh, he just uses the Joker voice for everything, though. It's it's fine. It's like, yeah, it's, yeah, like no one was Flash villain voice. It's just use it for everything. It's okay. But uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Where we love to watch, we're a movie podcast. We pick a theme each month and then do uh, different movies throughout the month based around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast them. Uh, we rarely remember. <laughs> I don't know why it's why we even say that we do that. But uh, this <laughs> week, it's, it's something for to aspire to. Occasionally. Usually we remember, and then it sounds like we really got our shit together. But most of the time, we're just talking about movies. Uh, it's the second week of Christmas classics. Uh, and we are doing Henry Selleck's first movie that everyone think was directed by Tim Burton. I was uh, going to say, isn't this movie directed by, by Tim, Tim Burton? Burton? <laughs> uh, it was basically all his vision, guys. What else did Henry Selleck uh, do? Which... Uh, could kind of hold water until about 2009. Um, yeah. Yeah, this uh, we're doing The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is this kind of completely bizarre movie that came out really on the heels of Tim Burton making, like, a bunch of the biggest movies of all time. So from that perspective, he definitely shepherded it in. And it also kind of represents – we were talking about kind of dividing these first three weeks up into, like, our the, the quintessential favorite – Christmas movies by like age group. So for Home Alone or for for like a kid, or at least when we were children, it was Home Alone. Uh, this is this feels like a like a teenage high school college favorite. Uh, and then next week we're doing It's a Wonderful Life, which is like after you hit like a certain age, you're just like, yep, no, that's my favorite. It's my favorite anything. I'm just gonna cry all the time when I watch it and <laughs> think about how I've given up on my dreams. And we'll talk way more about that uh, next week, including having some uh, almost uh, breakdown crying on the episode, I believe, because we already recorded it. Uh, very. My, I, I will say the guest afterwards messaged me. Goes, well, that was more emotional than I was expecting, but I had a lot of fun. <laughs> um, hey, we're not dead inside. We're, we're just dead mostly inside. dead inside. Mostly, mostly dead, dead inside. is still slightly alive. <laughs> yeah, he's only mostly dead. Only mostly <laughs> dead inside. Yeah. So this name ever for Christmas. Um, uh, we have a guest. It's a yep. four or five ton guest. One of our favorites. Oh, thank you, Morgan Renis, who can introduce himself here in a second. Uh, but he's one of the people. When we have guests on the show, there's a few episodes that I go, hey, if you if you don't listen to the show that much and you want to just kind of get the dynamic of what it is to be a guest, uh, Morgan and your Labyrinth episode is one of the ones that you suggest. You're so much fun to talk to. We're so happy to have you back. Thank you. Is that, is that Labyrinth one just because I basically am just a trash repository of David Bowie factoids? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's you, you get in there. You have a lot to say. And that's what we want. 
Um, okay, great. We don't want to. Pro- also- we don't want to poke and prod guests. We're not here to be like. So, what do you think? Get in there. Share your thoughts. We want passion. <laughs> We're like porn directors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't you sit know, in the corner just- at half mast. Get in yeah, there yeah. and really give it. Just yeah. give it your all there, buddy boy. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so, no. So yeah, why don't you introduce yourself? This week we're not talking what? about ball sacks. We're talking about <laughs> a different sack. And it's the man with all the toys. Ay. Toys sack. This week's movie features Santa Claus. Yes. But what guess you- what? He's also got a sexy little figure named Jack Skellington. That's right. Morgan, is Jack Skellington hot? Yes or no? Uh, Obviously, yes. He is. That is uh, right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. All right, great. Uh, Good show. Great show. Here's what makes Jack Skellington hot. I like people whose last names sort of describe uh, who they are as a person or what they look like, but not quite. Like, he's a skeleton. His name isn't Jack Skeleton. It's Jack Skellington. It's like if my name was, like, Aaron Dadboddington. It would would give people a good sense of who I was without just being like, oh, yeah, he uh, doesn't exercise as much as he should. Oh, yeah. And I'd be Peter Sadboyberg. Yeah. Yep. Morgan, go watch the Labyrinth episode in 10. (laughs) Great plug. Uh, But yeah, Morgan, if if people don't know who you are, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Uh, Yeah. My name is Morgan. I am a screenwriter. In training. Every time I, I book myself, I'm like, because I, I have like three failed startup podcasts and they have all fallen through. So basically, I'm just here to hang out and have a good time and talk about movies. The best form of a podcast is a failed version. It really is. Because then it, it doesn't have time to slowly disappoint you and your audience. Uh, it just yeah. gets to live on in the dream space. Exactly. You can yeah, just... you don't you don't establish all these weird resentments with your co-hosts and uh, <laughs> underlying things. You don't ruin your social life by being like, yeah, you know, I wish I could go to the birth of my child, but I got this podcast I've been doing every week, and I can't miss that. Honestly, if you... Honey, I would love to go to your father's funeral, but hear me out. I gotta record a podcast explaining to everyone why they're wrong about Goonies. Exactly. Uh, Actually, if you want to have a lot of sad fun... I would recommend uh, something that Peter and I were forced to do when we were trying to come up with a uh, for a name for this podcast, which is uh, figure out if other names were taken. Yes, uh, for for ideas that we had for names. Uh, uh, spoiler alert: There's a shit ton of movie podcasts, and it's hard to come up with a good name that yes. hasn't already been taken. And a- as part of that process, Peter and I got to see the remnants of a lot of dead uh, podcasts that just they didn't. They didn't quite make it. Like if they were like if it was like evolution, they like kind of got out of the water, but then their 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 gills hadn't fully turned into lungs, and they like <laughs> suffocated on the side of the beach. Uh, because there yeah. are so many podcasts out there that are um, two, three, four, six episodes in length, and I get it. You start it, and then you have this idea of how easy it's going to be. As Peter and I found out, there's, there's like as much. It's not. It's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of work, uh, yeah. and you have to figure out some stuff to do it. But I would sometimes listen to those. This sounds. I actually don't mean it uh, in like a mean way, although I could see how it could sound that way. But like, just make it mean. I would sometimes like listen to their like just like ten minutes of these these ep- these podcasts that just go away after, but are living out there on the cloud somewhere. Yeah. It is like darkly amusing to hear that first episode banter. Where they talk about like all their plans 
And they always do it, and I'm sure Peter and I did it too, of like, whoa, we're, so we're actually doing this. Okay, so here's, like, it's like this thing, and then, like, their, their next episode is there. Uh, their last one, and they, every 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 segment is like, we think this is gonna be a re- recurring bit on the show, and then oh no, it's, uh, it goes away. Yeah, but, uh, and I guess the better question is like, is it dedication or is it mental illness that I am about to wrap a podcast with Marcus Jones about the Ernest series? That's mental and illness. We, we are talking. We are Marcus. about to record the last Ernest movie. Oh my god, uh, <laughs> like. Is that is that something to be proud of? Yes, <laughs> not that I mean, one. You, you, the rest you stomached yes. the entire Ernest movie series. I mean, that's got to at least <laughs> count for something—an endurance test, maybe. In the podcast version of Pat Oswalt's bit about like uh, when he's like a screenwriter and he's he didn't you know he's like how can I finish this script and then found out about the movie you know Deathbed the bed that eats like that guy made that movie I need to work on my movies like I need to do it the I think the podcast version of that which is inherently sadder but is that podcast uh I think it's called the worst idea of all time mm-hmm. where they watch like fucking grown-ups two every week for a year oh yes oh and they, my god but like they they did it and then they did like other seasons on like Sex and the City too and stuff like that so like yeah if you are recording a podcast you're like okay how can we do this like I think I think that podcast for other podcasters is the deathbed the bed that eats because you're like yeah. alright if they didn't quit after three weeks I can I can power through and, and do this I can fucking do this I actually read a news article that like the very last week they had to watch Grown Ups 2 they actually rented like the mansion that was in Grown Ups 2 and screened <laughs> it and invited a bunch of people and I think like fucking uh, Kevin uh, who's who's Kevin the, Smith not Kevin Smith the Kevin who's the Kevin, Kevin, Kevin who James Kevin, Kevin, Kevin James like fucking showed up halfway through Oh my god, that's crazy. Yeah. Like, totally bad shit. <laughs> Did he, like, show up halfway through, or was he, like, sleeping in the closet? I don't know. shoot and was I, like, hey guys. I mean, uh, I think this was before Kevin Can Wait, his hit new series, or is it still on CBS? No, I, think, I don't know. I think it was canceled. I think they killed I, Aaron uh, Hayes, and then CBS the next year killed the show. Yeah. Uh, and they'll strike again. Yeah. Watch out, Tim. Who's Allen. next? That's right. They're going <laughs> to Oh, eventually... wait. We'll save the Tim Allen talk. We got. Uh... We probably have a four-hour episode on Tim Allen coming coming soon. Oh, man. I can't wait. I'm going to set aside a whole Ooh. day to listen to that. That show isn't even on fucking syndication. And, like, everyone still remembers. Like, you can't accidentally watch Home Improvement, and everyone still knows everything about that theme song. Did you ever play the Home Alone game? Or not the, the Home Improvement game? The, um, oh, my God. The one I where have. he has, like, the nail gun and fights yeah. dinosaurs? Yeah, and, like, he has to fight, like, dinosaurs and shit. It's so fucking weird. I have also played two Home Alone Game Boy games, and let me tell you, uh, all of those are bad. They're all uh, 16-bit nightmares that are here to haunt you. Uh, they all have weird, pixelated versions of their uh, main characters' faces. Yeah, you you guys are younger than me. Every TV show and movie was a video game, and most were not in any way related to their uh, to their movie theme. Were any yeah. of them good until, like, Chronicles of Riddick on Xbox? No, uh, so there were some, like, uh, I really liked the Aladdin games. Um, yeah. Basically, yeah. If, if, Ca- if Capcom had the property like DuckTales and Darkwing Duck and a lot of those games, they usually 
at the time did uh, did pretty good with it. I know there's a couple other exceptions, but but there's so I like I rented so many of those, not and never got past the first level and never learned my lesson. So fun story, I uh, my friend he doesn't live there anymore, but he used to live up the street from me when I was like nine, and he had a Genesis because his parents bought it on clearance. Because this was like, you know, 1987 or 98 when they were trying to get rid of all the 16-bit consoles. And he didn't like it. And he was like, hey, Morgan, do you want this? So I said, sure. And he gave it to me and all the games he got for it. And they were all trash-licensed games. (laughs) (laughs) Except for the Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which I think came bundled with it. And that's like the only game I played for longer than 15 minutes. That was like Sega trying to give your friend one good game. I had a great experience with Genesis growing up, but now like people are trying to mine my childhood. I'm like, we can can leave it back there. It's fine. I have good memories. Uh, I don't don't need all this shit just thrown back and sold to me all over again. Like, I'm good. I'm good. Here's here's what I've learned as someone who's bought, who has the, the SNES classic. Yeah. And has bought many Sega Genesis collections. Uh, it is true that the NES, the Super NES games hold up way better in general. Yes. I can still play them. I can have a lot of fun. Even the Sonic games, I don't, I don't have that much fun with and can't get very far. Like, I'm so sick of drowning in fucking Vegas zone. Yeah. Like, the second world. Uh, yeah. No, uh, Super Nintendo won, even though... Uh, it was much cooler to have a Sega because advertisements work on children. Yeah. And yeah. They, had, they were more edgy. Uh, okay. So before we get into the movie, we right. only have a segment, but this conversation brought up a great point. Was there a nightmare before Christmas video game? Do not look it up. So first, was there, not including the Halloween Town level in Kingdom Hearts. Okay. Um, was there? This <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> Morgan. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say no, and my th- my thinking behind it is that Disney kind of distanced themselves from this a little bit. They did. They they released, released by Touchstone Pictures. Yeah. They were and I, a lot of these games take a long development cycle to develop, and they would have had to put a significant amount of money into this beforehand to have gotten to a licensed video game. Am I wrong? Uh, you are wrong. Morgan is right. Huh. Yes. Um. It was made by Capcom. What system was it released for? Oh, fuck. Uh, what what year was the was the uh, movie out? 1993. 1993. I'm gonna say Genesis. Peter. Genesis feels like the right pick. Uh, it came out for the PlayStation 2 in 2004. What? And the Xbox the same uh, the the following year. And it is a uh, story sequel. To the original game, it is called Oogie's Revenge. That actually kind of backs up what I was saying. That like You're they right. did not, they they were not backing up this game with the the uh, marketing blitz that it it seems like it is today. Like if you go to Disneyland today, oh yeah, if you look at most Disney shops actually. So many of the stores are dominated by Nightmare Before Christmas stuff. But at the time, Disney was like kind of like gritting their teeth to see what the hell would happen with this thing that they sunk whatever 15 million dollars into and uh took three years to make yeah so it makes sense that it would happen like it would happen like 10 years later after like the cult had come up yeah that that hot topic dash just kids growing up cult that has that has grown around the movie it makes sense why it would happen in 2004 yeah i can yeah i can see that actually yeah and then there was another one released in 2005 for, for game boy Advance. advance which was called uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, The Pumpkin King. 
Neither of them uh, have anything to do with um, Christmas. Uh, they both the the Game Boy Advance one is a prequel that says how Jack uh, Skellington became the Pumpkin King. Because everyone uh, was asking one, that question. Everyone's asking that, and Oogie <laughs> just takes his revenge in the second one, and there's some revenge related stuff. Doesn't Oogie fucking Based die? On the in the movie, Oogie gets obliterated. He literally gets every one of his bugs dropped into a, a lava pit, right? Yeah, or like yeah. a pit of like fucking uh, the the dip from yeah. Roger Rabbit. I mean, I, they brought Ripley back, oh so God. why not bring Oogie? I, I kind of want to play this yeah. game now. The PlayStation Two one. It says gameplay is in the game is very similar to Devil May Cry. What? With the exception <laughs> of it being easier for younger and less experienced players. You're telling me there's a game where I can fucking Devil Trigger Jack Skellington and no one has told my goth ass about it? <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a Devil May Cry Nightmare Before Christmas sequel on the playstation 2 it's out there it's out there you can get it morgan Fuck. yeah morgan your job it's, is to here, find a way to emulate this thing <laughs> here's the thing okay this is the type of game that's either going to be 50 cents on amazon or 800 dollars. let's let's do one last game price is right rules oh okay how much do you think the lowest used copy on amazon is since I went first for is there a game, Morgan, you have to go price first. You cannot okay. do – don't do zero dollars. Don't do undercutters. Oh, yeah. Fuck that. Um, I'm going to say two dollars. I'm going to say thirty-four ninety-nine. Okay. Pulling up. The search is occurring. Ooh. You can get it new on Amazon for $100. It is $32.26. Peter. What? Why did you look it up? No. No, amazing. Yeah. Fuck. That was really good. Shit, if it's that much, it might legit be a good game. <laughs> you can trade I... it in. You can trade in for $15. They don't give you anything for trade-ins for, for even rare. You, you can trade in probably like a bar of gold for $3, but they'll, they'll trade in for 15 bucks. Yeah, because I, I distinctly remember I was uh... – what was I fucking buying? Oh, I was looking at for at Dragon Ball Fighter Z, and I think they were giving like ten bucks to trade that in. Yeah, fifteen so, bucks if you got the, if you got uh, Oogie's Revenge. So that that's confirmation <laughs> that Nightmare Before Christmas Oogie's Revenge is a better game than Dragon Ball Fighter Z. Confirmation, best. you you heard it here By first. Worthington's law, yes. Break. Wait, hold on. Let's do a breaking news sticker. Uh, Morgan Runis here with a special report. Uh, Morgan. Yes, yes, I'm here. Uh, uh, breaking news. Uh, the Italian Nightmare Before Christmas game is better than the best fighting game of 2018, uh, Dragon Ball Fighter Z. Well, wait till the president hears about this one. <laughs> Good night! Under Obama, the Noogie loves... A nightmare adventure was only selling for twenty two ninety nine under my presidency. It goes for <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I can't I'm a, do it anymore. He's he's the pumpkin king. I'm a tariff king. That's why it's thirty five bucks now. Used to be three dollars. <laughs> tariff king. Tariff king beats Skellington king. So Aaron, in case this Let's is nonsense for our listeners, oh, this is totally do you guys want to maybe do you guys want to maybe talk about the film proper, The Nightmare? Before Christmas. No, not Let's. really. On Elm Street. Sure. Okay. That's a, that's a better idea. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What's this? What's this? What's this? There's something very wrong. What's this? There's people singing songs. What's this? The streets are lined with little creatures laughing. Everybody seems so happy. Have I possibly gone daffy? What is this?
that. Peter, you are alternate taglines. Uh, alternate tagline Not a good one. one. Are you a goth teen? Here's your new identity. <laughs> alternate tagline number two. Yeah, Disney's pretty hardcore. Okay. I would have liked more of a reaction out of you, Aaron. Well, you know, I just, I was, normally when people go, here's number one, here's number two, you're expecting like a long list, especially when the first two aren't that good. I thought you were building, <laughs> but you They're weren't. They're both great. Okay. You give me a number three. That's good then. Um, hey kids. Boo. Hold on. I'm getting there. Give me a sec. I didn't prepare. <laughs> Sorry. I'll wait till you finish the Okay. <laughs> Fuck. I'm going to get booed before I even get the lessons out. All right. <laughs> Hey, kids, you like Oingo Boingo? <laughs> Can I be now? Boo! Soundtrack by the guy from Oingo Boingo. <laughs> I love Boingo. little girls. They make... I, uh, I love that song. <laughs> it's God. so bad. There's also some bad songs in this movie. We'll talk about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, uh, so, anyways, yeah. So, uh, the quick plot recap of... Uh, and it is a really quick movie, which I appreciate. Not, yes. I really like it, but... There's there's not much story here. It's really the design and a lot of uh, and the good songs that really carry you through. Yeah. Um, so I really like how brief they keep it. But essentially, Jack Skellington is the king of Halloween Town. Every holiday has a group of um, minions and a leader that kind of make the holiday come to fruition, as we find out. Uh, Santa is the most famous one, but yeah, there's there's also a basically a Halloween Santa named Jack Skellington, and he makes sure that he scares all the kids on Halloween yep. with his whole team of uh, frightening, spooky monsters. Um, yeah, so he has Halloween. He, they everyone in the town celebrating him. He's like, you know, it didn't feel great to me. Like I, I feel like I'm just going through the motions. He finds these portals to the other holiday towns uh, and goes to uh, Christmas town and it looks at it and goes, Hey, what, what is this? Uh, he goes, what is this? What is this? What is this? Oh, he's Mike Patton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, what is this? <laughs> so he, uh, he's like, this is joy. This is bringing happiness. I can bring more than just spooks, but joys, joys to people. Not just so spooks, he, but goofs. Yeah. So he goes back to Halloween Town, tells everyone what he saw. One thing I really like about this movie is how everyone is not like – there's not like cynicism by everyone. They're not like, you fucking idiot. Go back to scaring kids. They're like, all right. I guess we'll do this. We're, we're on board. <laughs> um, but like, you know, they're – they're, none of them have been trained in the ways of Christmas time. So their attempts, all their attempts to kind of recreate Christmas their own way fail. Um, and ultimately they decide, well, we can't figure this shit out. We can't crack this nut. Let's just steal. Uh, let's just kidnap Santa, steal his sled, and we'll just, we're just going to do it. We're going to do it with his his stuff and our toys. So Jack Skellington steals the sled. He delivers uh, their version of presents, which I want to get into more because that is everything where the Halloween people are trying to uh, recreate what they think Christmas would be like or what people would enjoy getting is the best part of this movie. Yes. Very funny consistently. So he goes and gives presents that uh, kids do not like, and the police are called, uh, and the cannons are shooting at him. The army has been called. They're trying to kill him. Um, and as he crashes the sled in the graveyard, he's like, hey, maybe I should just accept what I'm good at. Maybe... Maybe it's cool to like things, but I don't need to be – I don't need to have control over everything I like. 
And he goes back to being the best pumpkin king he can. Let Santa save Christmas. Finds love with Sally, who we didn't talk about. We can talk about a little more in the episode proper. Uh, who has been trying to kind of show Jack that he's a little bit misguided all while fending off a crazy uh, Dr. Frankenstein who has uh, who has created her in a lab. But that is The Night Before Christmas. It was uh, – the story was an idea of Tim Burton. Um, you wrote a poem. Wrote a poem. Yes. Uh, probably – I always picture Tim Burton like giggling to himself with all the spooky ideas he has. So he probably was sitting in a dark room with a little fucking pen light and being like, ooh, spooky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. As he wrote the poem. Uh, and then uh, Henry Selleck directed it. He went on to do James and the Giant Peach, which rules Coraline, which is my fucking daughter's favorite movie now. I can't watch it like twice a week. Um, uh, and also, I love that movie too. Um, and then Monkey Bone, which no one has seen, I don't think. It's one, it's, it's, Have you seen it? Yeah, uh, it's like as bad as you would expect. I've seen it a couple times and once when I was like the optimal age for it which was like whatever 11 to 13 and then a little bit later i saw a chunk of it and i was like holy shit this is bad as its rep it is i wish it worked because i really like brendan fraser and i really like brendan fraser it's yeah chris Catan. no i'm your number one corky romano fan (laughs) yeah it's um it's definitely not going to be exhibit a in why we should bring brendan fraser back yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I just remember seeing the previews for it and thinking it was bizarre. I only found out later that it was uh, Henry Selleck. Direct. But, I mean, Henry Selleck uh, not only is a, is a very good director, I would say that he – I mean, he has basically influenced uh, all of stop-motion animation. It came much later uh, because he did this movie and then, like, did James and the Giant Peach the like three years later – and then he did James and the Giant Peach uh, three years later, and then like he didn't make another stop motion animation movie till two thousand nine with Coraline. But like in that in the meantime, like Coraline launched. Um, I've never been sure how to say the studio's name. Likey, Lake, Leica, Leica, Leica. I think it's Leica, Leica. So I mean, he basically and he basically with uh, Leica produced Coraline, and Lake has been producing some amazing movies every couple years. But even though Henry Selleck is not directing them, they all are taking all the stylistic stuff that Henry Selleck did in Nightmare yeah. and James and Time Peach, and basically reproducing it and uh, and making some amazing movies with it. So. I, I, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that basically Henry Selleck is the most influential figure in stop motion animation in the last 25 years. Like, there's basically two people. Whoever made all those – well, I guess Rankin and Bass. That's who made them. Yeah. Uh, all, the, all the Christmas shorts in, in uh, stop motion animation and like Henry Selleck. Like, those are the two, I think, biggest names in stop motion animation. And um, this is kind of where it all started and it really – Especially from a design and a directing standpoint, feels feels uh, fully formed to the point that when like the person whose name it comes to most people's mind when they think of Nightmare for Christmas, Tim Burton, yeah. like he basically tried to make it. He's like, look, okay, I'm actually gonna make a couple of these, and the Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie are not that good. Uh, oh, I like Frankenweenie. I think they have the aesthetic, but they don't have the magic. They do no. feel a little yeah. forced. 
No, I, I liked. I do like Frank and Weenie. I think they're both like three star movies. Like that's that's where I'm at. I, I I like Frank and Weenie more in concept because it feels like Tim Burton's revenge for getting fired from Disney by having Disney make the movie that got him fired like 30 years later. <laughs> that's true. So I I like it in concept, but I think it came around the time that. Monster House and Paranorman came out, and both of those movies I liked a lot more. Yes. Yeah. So Frank and Weenie kind of suffered in comparison. Well, and Monster House isn't stop motion animation; it just is was like animated to look like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like the the Lego movies are now. Yeah. They're not technically stop motion animation, but they look a little jagged to imitate the Lego movies that people would make online. Yep. And the, yeah. That this movie is incredibly influential to yes the history of stop motion animation and that this was the first stop motion animation movie that i think disney had ever made and it was the first pg movie disney had released as an animated movie no black cauldron yeah oh it was it was this and yes it was this and black cauldron this was the first one in like 15 years yes 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 and it has an incredibly uh odd aesthetic that comes from its stop motion animation uh dna and from its tim burton dna and henry selick uh and like i mentioned earlier disney released it under touchstone to kind of give give itself a little bit of distance in case it was a big embarrassing bomb the movie itself has had a huge cultural impact but it's interesting to think that there's a lot of people that love that stop motion animation feel but studios don't want to commit the time and resources to getting these movies done like Leica is one of those companies that constantly like when the box office comes in for their new movies I'm always like please do well please do well like even if the movie's not good like please like just rob everyone please do well because I want this style of animation to continue on but really there's not that many people doing it that aren't doing it as a throwback yeah Obviously, Fantastic Mr. Fox and I yeah. Love Dogs are, like, done as a specific throwback, and that's done by a, 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 a tour that can do kind of, like, whatever he wants, and he'll make some amount of money, but, like, or, like, you know, small Christmas episodes. Like, have you guys seen the Community episode? Like, oh, yeah. Uh, Abed's, Abed's Christmas Dream, whatever? Yeah. It's, it's more done as, like, a quick throwback or... To the you know, Rankin and Bass stuff. Yes. Not a lot of people are doing actual stop-motion animation. Like, even those big Lego movies are just kind of faking it. So, I guess here's my thing with stop-motion animation. Like, so much of the shows that they would play on Nickelodeon when I was a kid, when they would just show, like, 10-minute shorts in the morning all day, uh, and even on the old Disney Channel in the 80s, were, like, Gumby shorts and all these – like, stop-motion animation used to be really big. I don't know if at at a point it was cheaper than, like, animation or what was going on, but um, it was amazing how much of those existed in TV form in the 60s and 70s that they repackaged for me as an 80s kid. Yeah. This goes for all animated movies or just all movies in general. Like, I like Henry Selleck's aesthetic and I love the the Leica movies as a result – but ultimately, I end up enjoying all those because they're, like, really good movies. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Box Trolls, um, Paranorman, like, um, Kubo, all great. Even after Selleck was gone, James and Dying Peach, great. Like, Corpse Ride, Kubo not still so- makes me, like, smile when I think about it. It's yeah. that kind of movie yeah. where I'm like, you can feel, like, the texture of the movie long after it's gone. So yeah. here's my sort of, like, I guess, thing. For a couple of those, I think they only work in stop motion animation. Like, I do think the Selic ones are unique. I think there is something about Coraline, which I have, like, as I mentioned, watched 30 times in the last 
two months, so I'm doing my own weird analysis of how many times I watch Coraline. And I do think that movie doesn't work as well com- computer animated or as like a traditional 2D hand-drawn thing. No. I, I think or the same- live action. Or live action. I think the same thing is true of Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, I haven't revisited James and the Giant Peach in a while, but I would imagine that's true. I don't feel that same way about Kubo or Paranorman or Box Trolls, even though I love all three of those movies. I just – I feel like they could have probably done a really good 2D animation or computer animated movie. The scripts are so good. The visualizations are so good. Um, I like the way they look, especially the paper and Kubo in in stop motion animation. But like those movies are good because they're good. I, uh, I, I think the Selleck movies are the only ones that basically wouldn't be as good. I do think that you're underwriting the fact that like – a film's style and its aesthetic and its texture is like a large part of how we experience the movie. I don't think that that I don't. I, I, while what I think you say is true, I don't think it's a slag on the movies from my perspective. Because no, like the texture of those movies is so important. Like even I, I think that style can be substance. Yeah, I think that's true. I just and I like what they do with like I think they're beautifully animated. It just – there is something about Nightmare Before Christmas where – and Coraline that I literally can't imagine having the same power in any other form. Where I can't say that that's true for Box Trolls or Kubo. Like I could have watched a, a beautifully designed 2D or 3D animated movie and had fallen in love with those movies the same because – I really like the story. I like the acting. I like the comedic bits in all three of those movies. But there, there's just something about the worlds in Coraline when she goes into like the other mother's like dimension and the entire Halloween town that feels like recreating that in any other form would be impossible. I totally agree with what you're saying, and I agree with the Leica thing, and I think it has to do with... Um, so I have to bring everything back to Star Wars or David Bowie, or otherwise I'm going to explode. Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh no it it's definitely the li- i think it's the lived in factor because like with yeah uh like kubo for example it you're right it's a beautiful movie and I, I don't think i would enjoy it as much if it was a 2d movie but i could see it working but with halloween town like everything in it feels so you can feel how it's been touched and you can you can like like it's so intricately detailed but it's in such a way where it feels like, you know, these clay puppets have been living in it and around it and influenced by it that, yeah, if you did it as, you know, like in Kingdom Hearts, when you go to the level, it doesn't feel as special because it's like, oh, there's yeah. a bunch of polygons with the textures. That's a good example. Leica's like Pixar. Their studio, Pixar produces computer animated movies. Leica produces stop motion animation movies. They look for writers and directors and they have pitches. And, you know, there's an internal team of animators and stuff that probably have their own pitches. It's, it's similar. Right. Whereas, like, Henry Selleck is truly an auteur and he is looking for stories to tell in this medium, like the medium that he helped advance. Yeah. So I think that's probably why that's the case. Like, 
Leica just they they make amazing movies, but that's just how they make their movies. They make them with with stop motion animations. What they're known for, uh, it's what, yeah. how they do things. That's different than what Henry Selick is doing, which is I want to find a story that meshes with my visual style, and that's why yeah. there is something different about his movies than than most of the others. There's, you know, and again, I I feel that way with a lot of movies. There's a lot of animated movies that would probably work well as live action, vice versa, like. There is something different about Henry Selick's where it's not just his movies are good. It feels like the medium that he's delivering um, to us is the only way to make them that good. Yes. I, I, t- yeah. I 100% agree. Fan of this movie, warts and all. However, I, I see where you're moving with this assertion. And I, I think that this movie would lose a ton of its magic if it wasn't uh, stop motion. A lot of the vocal performances are kind of poorly directed and modulated against each other. Because of that, I think in other mediums it would be more obvious, but there's a stiffness to the way everyone talks and moves that matches the format, and I don't know if it was just a happy accident or not. I don't think it is, because uh, I think James and the Giant Peach is similar, and I think he definitely figured out vocal performances in Coraline, but... Nightmare for Christmas is not the greatest story in the world. It definitely does not have the best songs. As a matter no. of fact, with the exception of two or three songs, I f- like I would never listen to the soundtrack all the way through no. because it, it. I tried ha- to do it on the way home and it didn't happen. It has it ha- like I like listening to this is Halloween. Like this is Halloween is like the the. Uh, Ends up on Halloween mixes. It's a great song. And what's this ends up on Christmas mixes. That's a great song too. It's about it. Yeah. The rest of these are like, we talked about this in last musical May, are like the type of musical songs that I don't like. And I imagine, Peter, the type of musical type songs that like turned you off of musicals. Like, we don't need like a hook or a melody or anything catchy. People are just going to sing sentences like yeah. you're at fucking, fucking church when the priest decides to all of a sudden take the reading and sing it for no reason. And you're yeah. just like, this is just dragging this out. There's nothing catchy. No one I goes agree. home. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's... And this should be this shouldn't be a musical. It should be a movie with musical segments, which is what yes. which is what I kind of remember it as. And then every time I watch it, I'm like, oh yeah, people just it's got like the worst inclinations of a Catholic priest doing a mass. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's definitely like yeah. I, I also forgot that it's basically a full fledged musical, but there is a it's reason. Like a Jesus Christ Superstar or a Hamilton, except the songs aren't that good. Yeah, and it's. I, I mean, I definitely think there's a reason that as popular as it is and as huge as it is, it hasn't gotten the Broadway treatment that basically all the other 90s Disney movies have. Because, yeah, once you get past, again, uh, What's This and This is Halloween, which are like the only two songs I can even remember from the soundtrack. Um, yeah, it's just boring, boring music. I, I, I like the song where Mr. Oogie Boogie is terrorizing yep. Santa. That song's good. But uh, but there's so many songs that get coasted on the beauty of the visual image, yes. the imagery here, like uh, that sequence where Jack Skellington is standing on that curvy, uh, that coiled road in front of the moon. It's like yeah, it's it's one of the most indelible shots in, in animated cinema history. It's it's 
beautiful. Like the colors are perfectly modulated and uh, they're not afraid to let Jack Skellington's drama speak from afar. But the song itself is, is just what Aaron was referencing. That's sort of like, I could just tell you about how I'm feeling, but I need to sing it. And just, it's going to be a lot of sentences and I'm going to sing these sentences at you. And it, and I, I, I don't understand. To be honest, that was a thing lo- to say that I think Danny Elfman is a good composer. Uh-huh. Like, on a technical level, he hits all the notes, but, like, I just don't feel... I feel more heart in Jack Skellington when he's just, like, talking and... Oh, so, uh, another thing to note. Chris Sarandon does the speaking voice of Jack Skellington, and then he basically said, he was like, I can't sing. Um, They sound a lot alike, but Chris Sarandon was probably in there for an afternoon because Jack Skellington does not talk that much. It's mostly song. While uh, Danny Elfman can hit the notes... Uh, and in some songs, like, it doesn't matter. I think he doesn't have, like, a a rich-sounding voice in a way. Like, it doesn't it doesn't hit me emotionally anywhere, is all I'm saying. Like, maybe he has the best voice in all Broadway history. I don't give a shit. It's not hitting me emotionally. I think it does in What's This. Like, again, I don't think yeah. the problem is What's This voice. works great because of the orchestration, the, the, or, the, the actual composition of the music, though. Like, it's a great composition. Yeah. Yeah, but that's, but I guess that's my point, is, like, his voice sounds shitty because he's like doing what I said before. Or another analogy is when like uh, a theater kid at an improv just starts singing random songs without like the music's <laughs> barely there. It's like, yeah, of course, it's you can be the best singer in the world. Um, like, do you guys ever listen to how did uh, the how did this get made podcast? That's sometimes. Yeah. So there's uh, when they do live shows, they have people do their second opinion song live. Uh-huh. So there's no orchestration. And those are like the kind of like, I want this to be over. I'm so embarrassed for this person. Right. Even when they get applause, even when they are really good singers because they're singing without orchestration and you can't tell what melody they're singing. And you're just like, can this please be over? This is embarrassing for everyone. This is just sad. That- yeah, yeah. That's to, to, kind of most of the the times besides those songs when Jack Skellington is singing, he's just like, and then I go over here. What is with this? I don't know. It's just like, oh my god! Like, no, why are you singing? It's embarrassing. Just stop. Yeah. So that's my point. Like, you give him a good song. Like, what's this? He fucking kills it. Yeah. It uh. It it, it reminds me of. Uh, back when I would like randomly watch episodes of American Idol because I would only watch the audition episodes because it's great comedy. Oh, yeah. But there'd be a couple times where someone would sing and I think it was always Simon Cowell would be like, mm, you don't have a pop voice, but you have a Broadway voice. So we're not going to put you on the show, but you should get an agent. Or... And, and I think it hits on a very real thing, which is some people have voices that are great for pop singing. Yeah. Like Danny Elfman, I genuinely think he's a great pop singer, but they don't have the voice for Broadway singing and vice versa. Like, I don't want to hear Lin-Manuel Miranda, for example. I don't want to hear him do, like, a pop single. Because he has a... Oh, yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Like, cause... Because he has such a rich, beautiful Broadway voice, and, like, it has this sort of, like, he can add tremolo effect, and he's very... He's technical effects to his voice. Yeah, I, I don't want to hear him singing, like, Bound 2. Yes, like, yes. Because, ba- you know, Bound 2 works because Kanye is not an amazing singer, but that works with his composition. Yeah, if Lin-Manuel Miranda sang Bound 2, you'd go, 
has that person ever had sex? Exactly. Like, that is what you'd think, because everything he would hit would be a little bit too much like, ooh, I'm singing about sex right now. It's a little Uh, too clean. It's a little too clean. But you have to be a little clean for Broadway singing, which is why pop... Like, and I mean, there's a rich history of pop stars just completely failing on when they're doing a musical, like uh, Madonna in uh, what's it? Uh, Evita. Evita, yeah, like Madonna and Evita is not super great. There, you're right. There's there's not that many crossovers, and there's not that many reverses uh, crossovers too. Like you uh, look at um, fuck, what's her name? Adele Dazim? Uh, Adina, Adina Menzel. Menzel. I remember the fake John Travolta name. Adele, Ma- Adele Dazim. <laughs> but yeah. she is an amazing singer, like Frozen, uh-huh. Wicked, like Rent and stuff like that. And she like became this huge person uh, after after Frozen. Like if you can think of anyone in the last five years who would be able to make the transition from uh, from Broadway star to like at least an attempt at a pop single, you think it would be her. And there was like nothing because yeah. – that voice, while amazing, just, yeah, you're right. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work, work in pop music. Like, I mean, you know, I'm a Kiss stan. I love me some Paul Stanley singing, but apparently he did a run of Phantom of the Opera in the late 80s in, like, Chicago or something? Who's the exception? Like, I feel like Ugh. Freddie Mercury could have done it. Meatloaf. Uh, uh, Meatloaf is a good exception. Me- Meatloaf would be a really uh, – Meatloaf's a good exception. Um uh, oh, David Bowie did. Uh, he did Peter and the Wolf. Who? Uh, some guy. You probably don't. No, I don't know who he is. So Oogie Boogie is voiced by Ken Page, who's a black singer, and I love the because I'm not a big fan of Danny Elfman. I love the texture that Ken Page brings in because he's got this deep bellowing voice with so much character and like it's so nice to have a villain that comes into this movie that sweeps in pretty late. This is an 80 minute movie, by the way. Se- not, it's like, not even. Is it 79? It's like 78. It's a rare, like under 80 movie. Yeah. Aaron, know what's amazing about this? This movie cost a decent amount for an animated movie. It took three years to make. It took, uh, let's say, there's 110,000 frames. I can't imagine. Look, I will say, I know there's been a lot of jokes on stuff where, like, people talk about how, what's what's the, the, the Parks and Rec one? I just the watched the Parks and Rec yes. episode where, where uh, <laughs> fucking Adam Scott is, uh, he loses his job. And so he's like, I'm going to go do all my passions. So he gets into calzoning and he gets into stop motion animation. And he he's doing the stop motion animation project and he does... Uh, he spends three weeks working on what ends up being six seconds, and he's like heartbroken. He's like, yeah. "I compared it to Avatar." Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I I can't imagine when and I've all those behind the scenes. I've seen some of the behind the scenes stuff on this movie specifically. Uh, and first of all, that it must have been amazing to walk in and like see their version of the set every day it just it's gorgeous like to see this giant like it's like being a kid and having like the actual playset that you saw in the commercials as opposed to like this is on my carpet when i get home like yeah. it's just yeah. amazing like you just you cannot have deny it. the yeah the sheer human effort this is like a hoover dam of a movie but like- then but then when you would see them do something and then okay reset we're gonna like do it like if they don't if they don't like it they have to move it back. It was just like I can't like I would I would quit I would quit after a day and I'd be like what did we do like we we did point five seconds I'm out 
No. Uh, it's too much. I don't know how anyone can do this. That's insane. Yeah. Morgan, Morgan, what do you think about the sheer human cost of getting one of these fucking movies done? Because three years, 110,000 frames. Yeah, I don't know. It's massive. I remember there's a theater advertisement. I think they did for AMC for uh, Coraline. And it's Henry Selleck uh, in the room with Coraline as she's talking. And they actually, like, as part of the ad, go through frame by frame while he's still in it animating her. And it's, like, dizzying how much he has to animate her just to, like, wave hello at the camera. Because it's, like, he's in the frame, like, 700 times just to get a wave. It's not a surprise that Coraline came out in 2009. We're less than a month away from 2019. Coraline was a monster success. It is not surprising to me that he hasn't made another movie in 10 years. And he's only made three uh, full-length movies because it's insane. Yeah, yeah. You know what he's doing next? What? An, an adaptation of the Little Nightmares video game? Little Nightmares. What? Interesting. That's what I found. Oh, he's doing a television series. The pilot will be directed by Henry Selleck. And then Henry Selleck will be on a beach. Yeah, he's like, okay, I can do 30 minutes. Yeah, okay, so uh, what I was I was pointing at is this movie comes under 80 minutes. It was an insane effort. Oogie Boogie, the villain of the piece, does not enter into the movie until like halfway through. No. And... It, and when he enters in, he fucking enters in. Oh, yeah. He has this huge, awesome musical sequence where he's torturing the shit out of Santa and he's he's throwing all these uh, these terrors at him. These like almost casino terrors. He's got like slot machines. He's got these army men that these like tin soldier army men and this circular cavern. And I imagine his cavern is circular shaped because it was easier to shoot stop motion yeah. stuff that way. <laughs> but it's it's insane. It is insane. The level of work they did. And then Ken Page, who voices Oogie Boogie, I think lends so much uh, character to the movie and so much humanity, similar to the way that uh, the the actor for Audrey Two does in uh, Little Shop of Horrors, where all of a sudden, like the there's an actor coming in and just singing in a way that is not a traditional sort of Broadway singing. Like he's coming in, it's like it's way more exci- like exciting. Like really helps break up the movie to have these like villains come in with a lot of character and just punch through the movie. Well, you know, he, yeah. basically everyone's a villain though. He's just uh he is given a mission and he fulfills that mission. Uh change in mission be damned. Uh Peter, <laughs> can you guess why I liked him so much? Uh <laughs> What's my favorite result- movie of all time? Because he looks like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. He doesn't look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. He looks like the Ghostbuster logo ghost. <laughs> oh, yeah, he does. Yeah, he oh, looks like the Ghostbusters shit, logo he does. ghost. Which ends up being in the Ghostbusters reboot. Re- yes. Reboot the reboot yes. pool, which, <laughs> um, which, which I loved. I loved it as a kid. When I first saw this movie, I'm like, oh, cool. It's like that ghost from the Ghostbusters logo that never is in any Except we're filled with bugs. You, you loved the yeah. Ghostbusters reboot as a kid? How old are you? No, <laughs> when I saw this movie. No. Okay. I'm, I was like, oh, like that's immediately what I what it reminded me of was the Ghostbusters uh, logo ghost. Especially yeah. because uh, I, I fell in love with Ghostbusters, not just from the movies, but the real Ghostbusters uh, animated series, and the beginning of that is that ghost walking around, yes. and it looks almost exactly like this. Yeah. No, I, I love Oogie Boogie. I think he's a great character, and this is one of those things where it's like, I'm studying how screenplays work and how they're structured. 
being in my screenwriting program has ruined Oogie for me because I can I look at him and all I see is a character that was added late in development because they realized they didn't have enough t- uh, enough story for a whole movie is what I feel like Oogie is. I kind of agree because it feels like they needed when when Jack Skellington finally decides there's it's actually it's actually kind of a poorly structured movie or oh, pretty, yeah. almost painfully simplistically structured movie. Jack Skellington gets shot out of the sky with howitzers mm-hmm. and then he lands and then he goes, you know, maybe I fucked up. All right, I'm going home. <laughs> I'm going to fix this. And and that's fine. Like to have someone literally be shot out of the sky and it gives them a come to Jesus, whatever. It's very sudden. It hits you very hard. The movie is 80 minutes long. I have to stress that. Everybody's decisions and, and uh, you know, changes of the heart have to happen very quickly. Jack Skellington goes home. He can't just pick up Santa and take him home. He's got to have, like, somebody. He has to have, like, a physical representation of his change, of his, you know, come to Jesus moment. And I feel like come, come I, to Santa moment. Yeah, literally come to Santa moment. And I feel like that was, yeah. I feel like the entire Oogie subplot was just added because they wrote the original story where he, you know, kidnaps Santa, does Christmas, yeah. gets shot out of the sky, and they were like, oh, we only have fifty pages of a screenplay. We need to get thirty more right now. So I think that br- that brings up a big, a big thing with this movie that we kind of touched on. Like this movie has some very clear strengths and some very clear weaknesses like i think it's a not that interesting of a story no i think it is not that well written i think most of the songs are bad uh and where it's good it makes up for all that like we talked about the design we talked about the couple good songs we talked about uh some of that stuff but i think this movie has two very important themes that i understand why uh, young adults and teenagers especially kind of glommed onto that kind of carried yeah. them through their life. And mm-hmm. what it reminds me of, I don't know if you guys have seen Ralph Breaks the Internet, but it's kind of Not yet, no. insane. Not yet. Uh, I won't spoil the movie. Like the two major themes of Ralph Breaks the Internet are also the two major themes of Nightmare Before Christmas. Really? Jack Skellington is the perfect person who's going through a transition in his life, which everyone does, especially from high school through college, where all of a sudden you're trying to maintain these friendships with people that you no longer share interests with anymore. Like, you are like, uh, I just don't care about the stuff that we used to care about. And that's a great junior high to high school. It's a great high school to college, college into adulthood of like, I – and. And it's also great because, like, in this movie, his friends are super supportive. They're like, oh, okay, well, yeah, we'll try to do your thing that you're interested in. But, like, as you grow apart, as you get older, that only lasts so long. Like, at some point, people can't if, – if if all of a sudden, like, my version of this is, like, all my friends from elementary school to junior high, like, became skateboarders. Because uh, it, was, it was the 90s, guys. Uh, and, like, I didn't want to skateboard. I was bad at skateboarding. I couldn't care less about all the shoes and the different decks they were interested in. And, like, I tried my best to continue to hang out and do stuff. But all they wanted to go, to go do was skate. And all they wanted to do was talk about skating. And they would do their best to be like, oh, Aaron wants to go see a movie. We don't care about movies anymore. Or, like, whatever else. Or he wants to go play video games. And, like, at some point, that just doesn't last that long. Like, because 
most of the time the reason that you're friends with people is because of common interests and even the best of like well-meaning people when you have these transition in your life where interests change it's hard to maintain that that's a big theme of it and then the other big theme of it is that uh you don't have to own every like you don't need to be the best at everything you don't need to own processes and everything like it is okay to enjoy something without trying to take control of it and make it your own and something like that and a little bit of not like stay in your lane but um you know people do have different abilities and trying to be the best version of yourself is important which is like fucking the whole theme of the first Wreck-It Ralph and the sequel's whole theme is about how, like, friends grow apart as interests change and it can be hard to maintain those relationships when you don't want to do the same things anymore. So it's so it's so funny to see those themes in this movie, which is like – but but I get, like uh, – I get why that uh, – both of those messages appealed to especially, like, you you know, we joked about call it the Hot Topic generation. But, like, those are the two most – uh um, you know, what do you call it? Those those are like the two biggest crises of like someone who's going through who's growing up is like I'm losing my friends because we're growing apart and yeah. the thing I wanted to do I'm not as good as I I I hoped I had been at. It. It's a powerful message and I really like it. Yeah, it it is a powerful message, but I see a lot in this movie. I think because it's so simple and so lean and so weird that there's a lot you can cast on this movie um i also see it about it it being about the importance of letting things remain special especially as someone who i love christmas i love halloween Uh but i like to have them in their spaces so that they can remain special and that they're not impeding on each other's space and i i fucking hate when people on like november 1st are like christmas time christmas time like do you really have the the enthusiasm to remain excited about christmas for two full months no no that's why you wait until after thanksgiving that's if you really need why you don't start watching horror movies in september you gotta take a break yeah Yeah. exactly you need you need a a, a tolerance break you need some time to adjust to the holly jolly yeah exactly And, and i that's why i have been pushing this for a little while what you should be watching between uh October 31st and Thanksgiving is Christmas horror movies. Yes. So you can ease yourself in. I think that's going to be our my new my new thing is just pushing everyone to watch all the Christmas horror movies in November. 3 to 4 weeks in between. Yes. Yes, and I agree Here's with that. Here's what I've done every November, Peter. I've essentially stopped watching movies that aren't directly related to ones I watch with my kid and uh play video games or read because uh, I spend all of October watching uh, like a movie every two movies a day on average. It's true. It's true. It is nice to give like a breather period for for uh, October. But like I would love the idea of of uh, uh, Christmas horror movies being like a transition point for people. Um, Here's the problem with Christmas horror movies, especially after getting done with Spooktober. Christmas horror movies are always more horror movies than Christmas movies. It feels like you're just watching more horror movies. That's yeah. true. I want to go into some themes. Cause, uh-huh. So, I, I, yeah, I think the movie is very much about keeping things special, but not ruining them by stepping in on other people's territory. I have a request, Aaron. Can I do a bad faith hot take? Sure. Uh, this movie is about the importance of segregation. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Skellington wants Jim Crow to come back. 
I mean, I I think that that's so. But hold on. Here's why that's not like I know I know you're doing a bad faith hot take, but it it is about that from like a personal standpoint, right? Like, because actually, I think at the end, don't like the Chris. Some of the Christmas people and the Halloween people like are like, oh, maybe we'll. I feel like you see some of them in one of the other's worlds, but maybe that's maybe that's incorrect. But I do think it's about you know you you're not you're not as good as at, at everything. So yeah, Max Killington was terrible about at at Christmas. His entire brain was wired to be uh, I need to make scary things, and that's what I want to talk about next: the gags yeah. because yeah. that's the other really good. Keep thing. Going. Yeah. But no, I I do agree with that. I do genuinely think a big theme of this movie is. If you want to spin the segregation in a more positive way. <laughs> no, no, I do think the movie is I think the movie is about appreciating other cultures. It's about appreciating It was other weird where when they went into the Valentine's Day world in the deleted scene they couldn't use the drinking fountain. <laughs> yeah, like I do think it is Maybe about the importance of not only sticking like not only of knowing what you're good at and I, I feel like it's a very family friendly version of a what is it Frank is the movie with the weirdo guitarist? Yes. I, yes. I feel like it's a much more family-friendly version of that theme where it's, you know, it's okay to not be good at this thing, but because you have your own strengths and your own uh, things you're really special and good at. That doesn't mean you have to be great at everything, and I really appreciate that. And also, I do get the sense that it is about staying in your lane. Jack Skellington is basically appropriating Christmas because he finds it and is like, oh, I'm going to take that, and everyone it's has a bad new time. And cool. See, I like that idea that it's about, like, cultural appropriation more than, like, segregation and, like, how that's shitty. That was a bad faith take on purpose, but I do agree. I do think that there is an aspect of, like, I'm stepping in on another culture. I am hijacking that culture. And then all of a sudden things are going poorly. Why, Why are things going poorly? And then that's where Kenny G came from. Yes. Ed Vanilla Ice. Yeah. Can I can I say the saddest thing that's ever happened to me as a father? What? What? So my daughter loves Ninja Rap, which is fine. She's seen Ninja, she likes Ninja Turtles. Great. I love Ninja Rap as a kid too. The other day we were driving home and I played uh I'm like, "Oh, you might like this uh cuz one of her kid bands is like like even it, it sounds like them and she likes Ninja Rap and I'm like, so I played her some Beastie Boys." Yeah. We got about 75% of the way through Sure Shot and she's like, can you play the ninja rap song instead? Yeah. <laughs> like, did my daughter just ask to turn off the Beastie Boys so that she could hear Vanilla Ice? <laughs> yeah. She'll, she'll grow out of it. Oh, no, I gave her right away. She's gone. <laughs> <laughs> if she if she does grow out of it, they'll give her back. All of my siblings, so I think have decent music taste, all of us would yell at my dad for playing Beatles in the car growing up. Oh, I know. So, a, yeah. I know, I'm just kidding. Like, obviously, yeah. I get it. I understand right now you're thinking, I need to put my daughter up for adoption. But it's okay. Well, this whole pass. Yeah. She might not be a dud. No, I'm, I'm You know, like... I, it, I am, of course, kidding. I would have liked fucking Ninja Rap and did like Ninja Rap more than the Beastie Boys, too. I did, too. too yeah, so. it's, it's okay. You know, in, in the words of my, my dear mother, we thought there was something wrong with you when you asked to turn off Sesame Street and turn on Barney when you were three. And it's okay. We've moved on from that. We've passed <laughs> that threshold. And they also like whatever is on. So good fucking luck trying to get them to like stuff that you liked as a kid. Like, you'll be able to do that for some stuff, and you'll be so happy that they like the Muppets and stuff like that. Yeah. But you're also, you're like, you're not watching DuckTales. You're going to watch 
Max and Ruby and Pinkalicious. You're going to like it. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Uh, one last uh, interpretation of the movie I want to get into. A uh, full good faith take is that capitalism never lets there be a moment without a sales rush or a marketing blitz. Yes. And I, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. I'm fine with it being marketed to shit, but I hate how it steps all over fall and it steps into other seats. Like it steps fully into another season. Things need to be special. And that's why billionaires are all insane is because there's like no regulation in their brain. There's no yeah. like they don't take no for an answer. It's just this hedonism like, well, I like this thing. So I'm going to do this thing until I'm sick of it and then I'm going to kill it, which is like I think how a lot of people end up feeling about Christmas by the time it comes. Yeah. Like I spent two months watching Hallmark Christmas movies or I spent two months watching every Christmas movie I could over and over again. And now I feel like shit. I don't, I'm not excited for the holiday. Yeah, because it's like January is basically a designated Christmas hangover because of how thoroughly the it's whole month. A whole month of a hangover. I want to talk about the Christmas delivery sequence. Which is beautiful. It's so beautiful. So Jack Skellington is gleefully dropping off all these presents, but he doesn't understand that these presents are terrorizing these children in a way that, like, they don't have that mental headspace for, and also they're incredibly violent. Like, they're they're terrorizing their house. And the best laugh for me in the whole movie is... He drops off this striped snake, which you can recognize from Beetlejuice. Um, you can recognize from a lot of Tim Burton properties. It's the Tim like, Burton snake. Yeah. Um, like tiny little bug eyes, huge mouth with lips, and then like stripes all the way down. Eating in a Christmas tree. Beautiful. <laughs> it's, like my, it's my favorite laugh of the movie because the, the kid is just sitting there watching it like, uh, while this thing is just like, the Christmas tree's conical shape is just shrinking. It's it's so fucking funny, dude. Like yeah. that whole that whole sequence and the way that the movie, we haven't talked about primarily, the way that the movie clashes, the almost painfully cloying sweetness, cutesiness, like a Rankin and Bass cuteness or a Dr. Seuss cuteness of uh, Christmas with the grim Universal Monsters version of Halloween. It's is, great. It's amazing. It's the, it's the well, God and they do revenge. they do something that yeah. I think is actually kind of amazing in that the Christmas stuff doesn't look grotesque in the same way the Halloween stuff does because I think it'd be very easy based on the way that the designs are made is that like it's still Christmas but it's fucking edgy Tim Burton Christmas where everything still looks off like yeah it it looks you know kind of bland but. It's still, like, adorable. Like, they don't go for a Tim Burton version of Christmas Town. Which makes the movie more effective. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So, no, it is indeed, yeah, I would agree it's the best sequence in the movie. Um... I could because watch it on that YouTube clash hours. suddenly becomes violent because we have bystanders who can recognize that clash, and it's the kids. These these like cute little claymation Rankin and Bass, cute ugly. They're like pugs. It's yeah, cute, ugly little like uh, stout children who are just like horrified by everything happening in their house. Everyone's so good too. Again, I I just find it so funny, and this is a gag throughout the movie. Is like they just can't quite get it you know they just can't quite figure out what that's supposed to be even jack who is kind of like so above them all is like okay well what would i want for a present like if some like i don't even understand the concept of someone doing someone nice for someone like and so he like for he gets like that part of the way there where he's like 
Okay, giving something to someone out of the goodness of your heart that they'd enjoy. Okay, I'm going to wrap my head around that. Got it. Got it. Okay, what would I want? Like, he doesn't he doesn't follow the thread. Yeah. He gets the first step and then stops. Yes, which is great. Yeah. That, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, it, it's, it's really lovely. And I love that the movie ends with Jack being a hero to Santa Claus, who's kind of an asshole. Um, when Jack yes, rescues him. kidnapped. He's just pissed off. Like, you don't get any of that holly jolly Santa. You get it. He's like, well, I shouldn't have been here in the fucking first place. So let me out of here. Well, Santa reacts very, very realistically to his situation, which is great. Yeah. He's not he's just like, why, why the fuck should I like? No, this isn't going to yeah. turn out like a happy go. And you fucking kidnapped me. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Can, can we talk about the kidnappers? They're my favorite characters in the movie. Oh, the kids. Yes. The little lovely. demonic kids are my favorite characters in the movie. They're. They accidentally kidnap the Easter Bunny, which is a great gag. One of them is a devil mask. One is like a witch mask. I, I think they're named like Lock, Stock, and Barrel. They're that's good. They're Lock, so Shock, fun. and Barrel. Sorry, thank you. They're so wonderful. They have this like great little bouncy aesthetic. Stop motion animation made them something greater than a minion or something. Like they're not supposed to be these like in any other movie. They would just be these little agents of chaos, and it would just be like, yeah, great. You you put some minions in your movie, but since it's stop motion animation, they're just real characters. They just happen to be children, demon yep. children. Yeah, and I like that their uh, masks are actually less creepy than their faces, but they're almost the same. <laughs> yeah. It feels very Halloween town. It does. I think that we should talk about really quickly the Tim Burton aesthetic. Yes. So, so like, sure. Tim Burton is really huge on mixing the, the cute with the ugly and uh, sort of trying to find a, a, um, a, balance. Yeah, a harmony between the two. Yeah. That's what Edward Scissorhands is probably the, the Bible for his style. Um, uh-huh. Pee Wee showed that he could do the the cute, like mid century modern, glossy, colorful thing really well, and then Beetlejuice showed that he could do the dark gothic thing amazingly well. But I think Edward Scissorhands works as the best Bible for him because it shows the clash and the the harmony sometimes between the two. Yeah, I, 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 once when I was inebriated, um, I, I, I said uh, Tim Burton is like if John Waters got into Bauhaus instead of uh, Phil Spector girl groups. <laughs> that's that's a good that's a good, good. Uh, comparison. Yeah. Um, we got into Oingo Boingo. He got well, yeah, yeah Oingo Boingo. Let's and also, out. and also had like a better <laughs> technical skill in filmmaking because like Tim Burton mm, also is yeah. like a. Tim Burton is like one of those dudes who really gives a shit about the classical approach to filmmaking, whereas John Waters is more of like a punk rock dude in like every aspect of his work, like his comedy, the fact that his movies are often very loose and like, let's just get out there and shoot it. Like, yeah. and, and that's why John Waters rules and Tim Burton has like. And drools. Yeah. Yes. Everyone wants to hang out with John Waters. No one wants to hang out with Tim Burton now. Yeah. Tim Burton just at some point. I, I feel like we talked about this in one of the Batman movies. Like, we had, like, an overreaching thing of, like, once he became one of the popular kids, he kept trying to, like, fake his outsider energy and he wasn't able to. And it, to was, it didn't work. It. Which is why yeah. the Hot Topic appropriation of – and the Disney appropriation of Nightmare feels so appropriate. It is just weird because, yeah, because Tim Burton is a punchline right now and he has been for quite a long time. But I remember in, uh, you know, 
2000, 2001, I listed him as like one of my top five or ten favorite directors because his aesthetic was just so um, unique and comforting and his movies were almost like universally good. Like yeah. everything from Ed Wood to the Batman movies to Beetlejuice to Pe- – like it, it was like almost amazing how many different genres he could work in, yeah. make amazing movies while still keep his style intact. Um, and then he just spent, you know, 16 years making weird, terrible carbon copies of those that um, – Yeah. But but this but this really is, as much as we've given credit to Henry Selick, like, this definitely feels Burton-y in the best way. Yeah. It, it's it's very Burton. It's it, – like, this movie wouldn't – like, as much as Henry Selick is an auteur and a great, great filmmaker, it wouldn't work without Burton's art direction. No. It just wouldn't work. And it does – it is different. Like, you watch Coraline or James and the Giant Peach, which are not Burton-designed. There, It's – the stop-motion animation is just as critical, but it's a different design. It's a different feel. And, like, I think – Yeah. And even then, I would say Coraline feels very much like Henry Selick trying to be influenced by Tim Burton in the designs. Mm, I think I think the Neil Gaiman stuff comes Yeah, through. Neil Gaiman comes through stronger, but – then again, I think Neil Gaiman. They and both Tim had Burton an interest in the similar sources: German expressionism, Gothic, and particularly Victorian literature. Uh, Edward Gorey. They all had. They they all kind of shared a similar set of inspirations. Um, yeah, even though the mix might have differed. The mix definitely differed. I, I I don't know. I personally prefer Neil Gaiman as a creator. But I think that's more because he. Neil hasn't. Gaiman has kept his hands pretty. Neil Gaiman has it dropped. Yeah. Neil Gaiman hasn't dropped, even though he did some real dumb bullshit like uh, yeah. fucking his unofficial sequel to Labyrinth. Uh, yeah, Mirror yeah, <laughs> which sucks. I yeah, I've heard it's, I've heard it's miserable. It, it sucks. Look, no one has flopped harder and more consistently from our favor than Tim Burton. Tim Burton um, is our, so long. our black sheep, but like you have to look back at what he did. Like I watch Beetlejuice multiple times a year. Um, and the fact that he helped bring this weird guy, even if you know it cheapened it maybe or it made it more commercial or accessible, he helped bring this like goth and uh shoegaze and this new wave and this sort of like bleak gothic exterior and aesthetic into the mainstream yeah um which is which did have a very positive effect on on movies overall like i think it helped particularly the way he shot batman i think understand the principles of german expressionism without actually having to watch uh caligari yeah here's and i love caligari i'm saying that uh, these people would not watch it (laughs) no yeah here's here's how i think you can tell how good burton was is that he has not made a good movie in a very long time and still anytime he announces a new project most people go oh interesting yeah maybe this like he still is able to miss peregrine's home for Peculiar chip. I got excited for that. I got really excited. I, 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 was, like, like, oh, I was like, Frank and shit, he's going to come back. Pride. Yeah, big eyes. Oh, he's doing like an Ed Wood thing again. Yeah, like, which it e- wasn't, but you know. Every single movie that he does, people are like primed for some sort of revitalization in his career. Yeah. It hasn't happened, but his next movie is going to be the same thing because he was so consistently good for so long. Yeah, like, well, I think his next movie is Dumbo, which people are like, eh... Uh... But people are excited about it, I think, 
because it's Tim Burton. Yeah, but like, like there is like a well, this is a bad idea. They shouldn't do this, but Tim Burton, huh? Yeah, but they said the same thing about Alice in Wonderland, and that movie's terrible. That's what I'm. But that's what I'm saying. Like he has built up this weird cachet where everyone is willing to give him an 18th chance. Yeah, that's true. But again, I don't think he's made a good movie. I I will stand for Sweeney Todd. I do think that's legitimately yeah, good. Sweeney Todd, Sweeney Todd actually but, has as the greatest microcosm of his aesthetic in one scene and that's Helena Bonham Carter is singing that song uh, about how much she loves uh, Sweeney Todd and they're on a beach and they're all wearing like these like oh, yes. goth pajamas. Hilarious imagery and it's like basically showed that Tim Burton could still deploy his own aesthetic but by the time he got to Alice in Wonderland he had turned his aesthetic into an Instagram filter. Yes, that's that's actually a really good way of distilling it. It's just like I love, like I loved Sweeney Todd. I think it's legitimately his last great movie. Um, but ever since then, it feels like he's just making crappy popcorn movies, and then retroactively going back in and saying, "Uh, people know me for the snake. People know me for the weird, <laughs> the weird makeup." Like his his downward trajectory is so bad he dragged Johnny Depp with him before Johnny Depp, you know, finished the job himself. <laughs> also, let's be fair. On paper, every Tim Burton movie is terrible. The idea of Edward Scissorhands on paper sounds like some shit I would come up with when I smoke too much. Yeah, no, uh, well. But it's a great movie. Well, yeah. He, I mean, here's the other thing about Tim Burton that I find fascinating is that I don't think he is cynically trying to make money. Like, no. I never get the sense from interviews with him that, like, he's just trying to, like, whatever. They're giving me money and I turn out this shit and that's a thing. Like, he's not one of those people, which a lot of auteur directors, like, kind of become. And you're like, they're just doing paycheck. We're only in I'm waiting money. for Wes Anderson to become that, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> like, I don't think – even though Tim Burton has made some pretty big movies, like, Tim Burton was always interested in, like, taking these big properties and, like – changing them to his vision to the batman movies to sleepy hollow like he was never afraid uh early on to take big properties so it's not like he's doing a cash in now it just truly and utterly feels like he's lost it yeah he's, like, lost he's like he's like michael jordan coming back to the wizards and being like everyone like no you need to stop no, this this one wasn't good this time michael like i know you came back once before but like it's it's kind of painful watching you to be honest and like we're good you just you're just older now like you just yeah. can't do it and that doesn't happen to directors as much as it does like athletes or even singers and stuff like that so i don't think we're as used to it as like he just he just lost it yeah we keep hoping he gets his groove back and he never it hasn't does happened. yeah i think it's i think it's tim burton to a lesser extent, Kevin Smith and Lucas. I think those are like the big three of like. Eh, they just lost it. Yeah, yeah, lost the plot. Oh, uh, Brian De Palma, I guess. Oh, I like Femme Fatale. Okay, fair enough. I haven't seen it in a long time though. Passion showed that Brian De Palma also hollowed out his aesthetic and didn't seem to understand why he was doing it before. But also Brian De Palma, when you watch certain movies of his, some, certain one of the classics, you're like, oh, maybe you never understood it. You were just like an amazing technical stylist, and eventually that faded. And eventually it caught up with him because because <laughs> uh, people so... better than him were doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I... What else do you guys have to talk about with this movie? Some s scenes or anything? I um, problem is, like, the only, th the only other thing I, I want to mention is that I really do love after uh, when it's daytime in Halloween Town. It's not black and white. 
but it it looks like it kind of is, and it it's looks kind of exactly. sickly. It looks like it's permanently overcast. Yeah, and it, it, it's this amazing effect of like allowing the characters to still still exist in color, but the backgrounds looking black and white. That really like recreates, uh, you know, '30s and '40s Universal monster movie background. So my final thought is good movie but it's a it's a good movie despite itself henry Selleck, i think made a masterpiece in Coraline. um this has so much to love about it but and the good stuff overcomes the bad uh it's just you know it's if it was 90 minutes if it uh wasn't so painstakingly crafted if its themes weren't as resonant uh you know it just wouldn't be it just wouldn't be that great of a movie because no. the 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 bones aren't there like the bones are sickly and weak but all the skin and the muscle are really doing well and so that really carries it so it's great i actually think of it more of a halloween movie than a christmas movie yeah but, um, i do too it is it is very much a a fun movie to watch in this this time of year yeah no i i i thoroughly enjoy it it's it is blessed Christmas decorators with the <laughs> laziest possible decorations ever, which is if you put up a Jack Skellington thing in Halloween, you can just leave it till Christmas and say that's your Christmas decoration. <laughs> put a little Santa hat on it. No, I, I literally talked to somebody who I, I I was walking by a house on Halloween night and I said, are you going to keep this up till Christmas? And they're like, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I literally have like a in my driveway. I have two Christmas decorations. I have a bunch of like light up Christmas gifts and still there from when I set up my Halloween decorations, a giant inflatable Jack Skellington. And it's like, that's all you need. That's all you that's need. That's awesome. Yeah. But uh, no, otherwise, it's a good movie. Um, it's a bad musical, but the aesthetic, the acting uh, honestly makes up for it. Um and it's one of the few movies where I don't care how much Hot Topic has uh, shielded out. I My enjoyment of it will not be tarnished, unlike Doctor Who, which I fell off of for like four years because of that shit. Yeah, I, I actually have been to Disney, uh, to the uh, whatever new New Orleans or whatever the fuck they call it. Oh, the, 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 Hall- the Halloween Town, ver- yeah. the Halloween version. Oh, it's great. And I've also been to the, uh, I've been to the Haunted Mansion during uh christmas time when they make it uh nightmare before christmas yes and it's very it's very interesting to see something like that that as a kid i was like this is a weird little movie all of a sudden blown up to 130 percent of of what it uh, you expected it to be um the cultural impact of this movie is huge this is yep. one of the few movies we've done on the show where everyone i know has some hard feelings on this movie so just either positive or negative you can't really speak to the cultural perspective on this movie in full with without doing a whole episode on it because like what i really want to talk about right now instead of that is the fact that it's looking back to horror history like there's a wolf man there's like the mayor is sort of like a jekyll and hyde thing it pulls in caligari caligari like a aesthetics uh frank it's got a cthulhu got yeah. a cthulhu back there there's a cthulhu yeah. in there there's frankenstein has a huge impact on sally and dr finkelstein um swamp thing is in there vincent price was originally cast as a character but he was kind of too old uh tor johnson from plan nine is featured in the movie this movie is so invested in its in its past and it's trying to just glom together its own piece of history from a past, 
from new ideas, create something new. And it managed to do something that's like wholly original. It's insane that there aren't more movies about like a pumpkin headed man who just wants to learn the meaning of Christmas because like it would be an easy thing to rip off. I, I really appreciate the movie for what it is and for its sense of weirdness. And I don't just mean like aesthetic weirdness, but the fact that it's even a stop motion animation movie is weird. And that's yeah. why I love it is that it is that every frame has a sense of fascination for me. And and something is beautiful in the frame. If, if the song isn't grabbing me, the artistry is grabbing me. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm still a fan of this movie. I agree with Aaron. It's more of a Halloween movie in a weird sense. Um, but yeah, this, this nightmare still works. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do agree that it's more of a Halloween movie, but. I I, th- I look at it more as uh, advertises itself as a throwback to Universal monster movies, but it's smuggling in a Rankin Bass Christmas special under it. That's true. It's yeah, like it's like very, you guys yeah. think Universal horror is cool, but guess what was also cool? Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Yeah, and I think that's why yeah. that's why I really like it is that it's. It's the easiest way to melt to show that for all the accoutrements, you know, the black leather, the lace, and all that, goth kids, they still like Christmas like the rest of us. Yeah, and you know what? I'm glad that this movie has taken off, and I'm glad that the decorations are sold in every Walgreens in my state. Like, it it has a it has a couple of, I think, really good messages. It has really good themes. It's fun to look at. Like you said, Peter, it has, like, an education on... Uh, horror icons and stuff like that like this is this is one of the good ones that i'm glad it uh, overcame its initial box office disappointment and its imperfections to become this like culturally relevant touchstone favorite that everyone agrees is good even if they haven't seen it in a long time so uh yeah so with that morgan thank you so much again for joining us Uh uh anything to plug well, when I set this up, I was originally going to plug a podcast that I'm work- I was working on. I don't know if it's still happening, but I'll plug it anyway, just in case it comes back from the dead. It's called Disaster Peace Theater. It is a podcast where me and my friends Ben and Scott find the absolute worst fan fiction on the internet and do dramatic readings of it. And uh, I didn't even know that exists. Is- does that release somewhere? Where can people like myself specifically find it? We recorded the first episode, and we we had to take a hiatus because of some personal drama, but I'm hoping to bring it back So because we're planning to record like the first three episodes and then release that and then do an episode hopefully once every other week once we get the rhythm going. The approach is like, yeah, we're kind of having fun with it in like a cringe sort of way, but we're trying not to bully it. And all of us have writing experience. Uh, Scott is a internationally known fan fiction writer. I'm a screenwriter. Ben's done some writing himself. But we it's more of like a writer's roundtable where, yes, look at this hilariously dumb thing. But we also offer like genuine advice on like what works about it, what doesn't. Um, so that sounds awesome. I, I love that. Yeah, I love the positivity yeah. or the, the optimism to bring to something that could be read as very mean. Yes. Yeah. And that was very important was we didn't want to come off as bullying, even though we're reading like uh, the, the episode we recorded was a fan fiction on what if Princess Leia was trapped in the World Trade Center on 9-11, which is a. <laughs> I was hoping that was the kind you were making fun of is like. Because there's a lot of fan fiction that serves a purpose that the market is not doing, and a lot of it should be not shamed. But there are those funny ones that are like, like, fuck. I I couldn't think of an example that's as crazy as that one. So yeah, no, that's that's the one we did, and then there's another one we have lined up that's a kingdom. Before we went on hiatus, that was a Kingdom Hearts one. That was, I think, like a um, I think it was like Riku 
gets leukemia or something, and it's very, like, overly melodramatic and, like, w like I get what you were going for, but nothing about this is succeeding. And, you know, it's stuff like that where it's we're, we're not going to do, like, you know... I don't. I personally would not want to do things that's like, what if we queered the characters? Because it's like, that's fine. I don't give a shit about that. It's more like, again, what if my beloved Star Wars action heroes were trapped in a horrific tragedy? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, which... No, that sounds awesome. I hope you guys do continue that. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a lot of fun. It, it's a lot of fun. It's a disaster piece theater. We're hoping to bring it back. Dot com. Dot com. Uh, dot net. <laughs> the whole website. Disaster piece theater. We're hoping to bring it back. Dot com. Mm -hmm. Uh... Yeah, so Peter, we have a couple more of these. We have uh, next week, It's it's a Wonderful Life, which we've already recorded. Great episode. Uh, can't wait for that one to come out. And we recorded that with uh, Casey Giltner. Uh, very good episode. Uh, screenwriter and uh, someone who I know in real life. So that's exciting. And then Peter, this is actually the first episode that's going to come out that's going to announce our little pivot away from the Christmas special episode. Oh, yeah. So Hold on. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. What? What are we doing instead? Ooh. <laughs> so instead of our Christmas specials episode, couldn't really find a good set of specials that really gelled together and wouldn't just seem like an episode. And that we that wanted to talk about. Really, the only thing we were excited to talk about was the Grinch that stole Christmas, and that would be like a 40-minute episode. That'd be, and that'd be like, yeah, Grinch is great. Everyone knows that because it's literally the most recognizable yeah. Christmas thing Instead, of all. we're going to be tackling... Tim Allen's The Santa Claus with an E at the end trilogy. We're going to be doing all three of them. Aaron and I have somewhat positive feelings for, for the first one, at least. I love the second one, too. Have you seen the third one? I have not all the way through. I gave up 30 minutes in when I tried two years We're, ago. Well, this time you're going to give up at, when the credits roll. You mean um, I can't pull my escape clause? This is going to be fun. I think also this is something we're going to try and do more in the future is just like do special episodes on pieces of uh, movie history that we don't think people are covering. Like tra trash, but not the kind of trash that people love, like canon movies. Like I would love to do some, uh, like a chunk of Hallmark movies next Christmas. Right now, we're going to do the Santa Claus trilogy. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm excited. I don't know if anyone else is because everyone <laughs> else. Here's, here's what was funny. So we posted it on our Facebook group. And everyone, I think, thought we were doing it to torture ourselves. <laughs> like, oh, you guys picked some bad ones. Good luck with all that. It's like, well, actually, I really like the first two. <laughs> I, think they're well, good. I think we'll, I think we'll make a rousing, uh, a, a rousing uh, endorsement for certain parts of the series, and not so much for the latter parts. Anyways, there's gonna be a lot anyway, of fun yeah. stuff to talk about. Um, and so, and then yeah, uh, and then our first week in January will be our best of 2017 episode. So. Very excited for that as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thank you, uh, Morgan, for coming. Uh, it's always yeah. a pleasure. I hope when you go to sleep tonight, you also have a nightmare before Christmas. Nice be now, or you must face the dire consequences. The children are expecting me, so please come to your senses. Ah, you're joking! You're joking! I can't believe my ears! Would someone shot this fella? I'm drowning in my tears. It's funny! I'm laughing! You really are too much. And now, with your permission, I'm going to do my stuff. What are you going to do? I'm going to do the best I can. Whoa!
Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment, tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again... Above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.